Father in heaven, it was our Lord Jesus who taught us to pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is our prayer. We pray now as we open the scripture that we can see how that might happen, that you would grant to us confidence that indeed your kingdom will come and is coming and that you have those on the earth who will preach your gospel until they die. And so we pray that be true of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Acts and chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, please. I have listed that I'm going to read the first four verses. I'm actually going to read the first eight verses, even though I'd like to read the whole chapter. So, I'm going to compromise and only read to verse 25. You you know you're my experiment for the second service. I'll see how this goes, and maybe I will do it, or maybe I won't do it for them, but but I want to read verse. I'm only going to speak to the first four verses, but I I just like this. So listen, hear the word of God. Verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution, that is, Stephen's execution, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." When they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when, the, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You've neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me uh, to the Lord, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, as I said, I only want to speak to the first four verses, really, at best. Uh, but, but I just want to lay this out. This is where we're heading, as where we've been, the church in Jerusalem, then Stephen, and now on to the ends of the earth. But, but isn't this a marvelous story? 
I mean, uh, I, I, sometimes I wish I could read it for the first time again, just to see what my impressions might be. I've been through it so many times that I have to slow myself down because I know what's coming and yet to stop and to think because it's an amazing story. And by story, I don't mean fictitious tale or fable. I mean real history, a narrative of what went on in the lives of these early followers of, of Jesus. And so you see, it's incumbent upon us really, really to listen because when we, when we read the Bible, we're listening to God. Uh, we have through the scripture, an audience with God himself. Uh, and, and that's so amazing. I mean, there's a sense in which God comes to us and says, what do you want to know about me? Here's who I am. What do you want to know about yourself? Here's who you are. And I think about, I've been thinking about this week since vacation Bible school, especially the children in our, in our congregation, the kids who are some in this service and some are out and about and so forth. But the kids have such an opportunity if they'd only realize, growing up, they have an audience with God right in the scripture as, 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 as they listen to him speak to them. And the way that God speaks to us primarily, of course, is through the person of Jesus, between the person, in the person of our Lord Jesus. And we read of him in the scripture. That's how we know of him through the scripture. But God is speaking to us in Jesus as we come to know him. God says, you want to know who I am, then look at my son. Because he is Emmanuel, he is God with us, he's God in the flesh, he's the word become flesh and dwelt among us. He's the, he's the radiance of the very glory of God. In him, all the fullness of deity is pleased to dwell. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that's why the Apostle John could say, of Jesus, he's come to make the Father known. And so we understand that as we read the scripture, we learn of Jesus, as we learn of Jesus, what we're seeing really, or the person we're coming to understand and to know, is God. That's why reading these stories, these incidents, these events, this history is so important to us, so valuable to us, because God is speaking to us. He's laying this out for us. And not only do we come to know God as we read the scripture, as we come to know Jesus, but we really also come to know ourselves, who we are. Because as we come to know Jesus, we're not only coming to know God through him, that is God in the flesh, God with us. He's come to make God known to us. If we've seen him, we've seen God. But also, if we've seen him, we've seen who we're to be. Because he's not only God in the flesh, but he's human being in the flesh. He's both. He's who we're to be. And as we come to know Jesus, you see, we come to know God, and we even come to know ourselves. He reveals us to us, even as he reveals God to us. You see, we've lost who we are to be. We've lost what humanity is to be. See, we were created by God to glorify him, to reflect him, to glorify him, to honor him as God, to show him glory, to say, you're God, and we're going to worship you and obey you. That's who we were created to be. And we're also created to reflect him, to glorify him, in the sense that, we're to, in, in, in the sense in which he's made us, to be like him, to be love as he is love, to be just as he is just, 
to be merciful as he is merciful, to be kind as he is kind. And all of that, we're to be like him in that sense, you see. And we've lost that. And we've lost that because of sin, the Bible says. This sin in us causes us, works in us in such a way that we go our own way. That we're not looking to God to define us. We're not looking to Jesus to say, what is humanity to be? Who are we really to be? But rather we're looking to ourselves, this self-definition. And it creates this selfish world in which we live and causes all kinds, all kinds of misery. We see it. We experience it. We inflict it. Selfishness. When you have a bunch of gods running around, defining themselves, saying, I'm the measure of all things, then there are conflicts amongst all these little gods all the time. The conflicts that the Roman gods had was not so much a manifestation of real, true, and living God, excuse me, but a manifestation of humanity. And that's how we are. Excuse me, cut something in my throat. Now I'm okay. One more swallow. Must have been the Cheerios I ate this morning. It's always my pregame meal, Honey Nut Cheerios. But now I've lost you, haven't I? There you go. You're thinking little Cheerios. <laughs> Honey nut. Some of you are thinking you should eat the plain ones. They're better for him. Uh, I know. I know what's going through your mind. But you see, when we have a bunch of little gods running around bumping into each other, then there's anger and there's war and there's jealousy and there's conflict and there's slander and, and there's gossip and there's all of that that takes place, you see. Because you've got what I want. And you shouldn't have it. I should And so all of that takes place and we see the misery in the midst of that. And so we're defining ourselves by ourselves and we're missing completely who we're we're to be. And so Jesus comes to show us who God is and Jesus comes to show us who we are. And he's come to do the Father's will, he says. He's come to glorify his Father. And all of a sudden we see, yes, that's it. That's life for a human being. Life for a human being is to come and to reflect God, to glorify Him, to honor Him, to obey Him, and all of that. And so you see, as we, as we come to the Scripture, uh, we're, 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 we're seeing God, and we're also, therefore, seeing ourselves in Jesus. And so the way that God reveals Himself to us through the Scripture as it comes is, is to, show us, to show us Christ. But for us to see that, of course, something's got to happen. Because the Bible says... Because of this sin, we're living in the futility of our minds. That is, our own thoughts about ourselves, our own thoughts about God, are futile, they're vain, they're wrong. They lead us nowhere. Actually worse, they lead us to death. Actually worse, they lead us to hell. And so we live in the futility of our minds without God. And so something's got to change Our minds need to be transformed. Further, the Apostle Paul would speak in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, not only about the futility of our minds, but the darkness of our lives because of the hardness of our hearts that even gets deeper within us, you see. There's something that's that's, that's causing us to, 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 to keep God away, to block Him. Our hearts are hard. We won't absorb Him. We won't touch Him. We won't feel Him. We won't acknowledge Him. We won't embrace Him. Because of this hardness of heart. 
And, and you see, all that's got to change. And the good news for us is that that's the work of the very uh, Spirit of God, that changing our minds, changing our hearts. The prophet Jeremiah speaks to it uh, like this. In Jeremiah 31, he says, he says, uh, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquities, and I'll remember their sin no more. He says, Listen, here's what I'm going to do. And this will break the futility of your minds. This will break the hardness of your heart. This will break the darkness. I'm going to write my law upon your mind. And I'm going to going to put it in your heart. The very disposition of your heart will be inclined towards me, towards my ways. The prophet Ezekiel even spoke of it again in very familiar terms to us, I think, in Ezekiel in chapter 36. In verse 25, he says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Again, this emphasis that sin's forgiven Enable us then to turn to God. Verse 26. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And so he's saying, listen, this is a work of the spirit, a change of the heart, which we can't do, only God can do. And when it comes, you see, then we see. And as we listen to the scripture, we hear God and see Jesus Jesus put it like this in John chapter 3, speaking to this teacher of the law named Nicodemus. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He said, there's something that's keeping us from seeing the rule of God in life and seeing him clearly. And, and that thing is, is, is our own sin. That thing is this futility of our minds, this hardness of our hearts. Thus, in order to see it, one must have a new heart, one must have a new disposition towards God. And so he says, you've got to be born again. Not just simply this first birth of being born physically, but, but now this spiritual birth. And then Jesus explains how that comes. Verse 5, he answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is, is spirit. He said, this is a, a very a work of the Holy Spirit. And so you see, when the Spirit of God comes and does this work, what happens to us? Turn quickly, 2 Corinthians, in chapter 4. In verse 4. Come on, come on, come on. Got a lot to say, not much time. First, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He says, in their case, that is, the ones to whom all this is veiled, they can't see it. Their case. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, what we're being kept from seeing because of sin, because of Satan blinding our minds through this sin, is that we're unable to see the glory of Christ. Because, you see, when we can see the glory of Christ then we see God and know Him because He's the very image of God. And not only do we see Him, but we see us and who we're to be. But we're blinded, verse 5, 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. And then this is what I'm after, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now you remember when God said that. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be light. That was his creative decree. And when he said it, what happened? There was light, right? Because he decreed it, he said it, he's God, he made it happen. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, what overcomes this darkness, what overcomes this hardness of heart, what overcomes this futility of our thinking is the decree of God. And he says, let there be light in that heart. And we see it, you see. And once that happens, and we know it's happened, because as we're reading the scriptures, we see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We're drawn to him. We say, yes, he's the one. Yes, he shows me God. God is like that. Yes, he shows me me. I'm to be a human being after his human nature. I'm to live to glorify God. I'm to live in such a way that will reflect God. And so you see, as we're reading through the scripture, this is, this is really what we're to see. We have an audience with God as we read through the scripture. And not only that, you see, we, we might be asking, well, if that's true, then that means when I come to the Bible, God's going to answer all my questions. All I have to do is read it and, and ask these questions and, and I'll get answers to all of those. But I think the thing that we have to see as we're reading through the scripture is that God sets the agenda on how he'll be revealed. We don't. In other words, he's the one asking the questions and answering them. He's the one laying this out. So as we come to the book of Acts, as we read through it, it isn't like we sit down and say, okay, God, I want to know about this, 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 and this, and this. It's that God sits down and says, I want you to know this, 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 and this, and this. That's different. That's different. You remember Job thought, if only I could have an audience with God. Read through the book of Job, you'll find this a number of times. If only I could have an audience with Job, with God, then, then I would know why I'm suffering. Then I would know why this is going on. Then he would tell me. And then when he saw God, he said, I'm going to shut my mouth. And God, you just talk. And I'm going to listen to however you put it. And you remember, God didn't put it to Job like Job thought God was going to put it. But at the end, he worshipped. He said, all right. Now, you might be asking, what's this all have to do with Acts chapter 8? This. And as we come to Acts chapter 8, like we come to every other piece of scripture, what we're doing is listening to God. He's laying out the agenda. He's laying out how we're to think. He's laying out how we're to understand him. We're to lay our questions in some sense aside and we're to listen to him and say, okay, God, what are you saying here? What are you saying to us through this book of Acts as we go through it? Now, since it's just one book of the Bible, obviously, we're not going to hear everything about God that there is. Obviously, we're not going to see everything about Jesus that there is. Obviously, we're not going to see everything about ourselves that there is. If that were the case, then we'd only need the book of Acts and that would be all we'd need. But we have the whole Bible, so we, we do this all the time. And so we're finding stuff out that God's revealing to us about him, about us, and how we're to live. And so as we come to this book of Acts, I think the thing that we see 
is that what's important to Jesus, and therefore should be important to us, is this mission. He begins by giving his apostles this calling, this mission, really an identity. And you remember from Acts chapter 1, he says, he says, wait in Jerusalem. There you'll receive the Holy Spirit, you'll receive power. And when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You get a sense all of a sudden that what's important to Jesus, what he reveals to us about God, is that God has a mission. And that God has a mission of taking this gospel, this good news of the kingdom of God, of salvation in Christ, of forgiveness of sins and all of that, it's his mission for us to, to take this and, and go with it. And that's what's important to him. And, that, and as a human being, as one who's been called to glorify God, this is a way in which we glorify him. We reflect him. We show him great. We say there's something here that the world needs to know. There's something that the world needs to know about God. There's something that God, needs, God wants the world to know about him, about this salvation in Christ. And so he gives this mission, you see. And so that's what we're hearing. And I think what we're hearing as well is that this mission is God's mission, thus it will be accomplished. This mission is God's mission, thus it will be accomplished through us. And I think he tells us that not to make us lethargic, not so we can sit back on our laurels and say, oh, no big deal, it's going to be done. But to hear and say, it's going to be done. We're actually going to triumph. This, this gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. But before we get too confident about that and just sort of run off, we realize that there are obstacles and God says, I will overcome them so that in the long run, in the end result, I'm going to get the glory from this. This will reflect me, this whole mission working through you. And as we read through, and as we've been reading through the book of Acts, we realize that there are all kinds of obstacles which God has to overcome, not the least of which, it appears, the inertia of the Christians in Jerusalem to get on with it. Now, I don't blame them at all. Uh, on the one hand, if I were there, I don't think I would be behaving any differently than they, because I don't know that they could really grasp it and understand it. I'm not sure we really grasp it and understand it, what it really means even now to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and all that. But in that case, it was just beginning, and here they were in Jerusalem. There are all kinds of obstacles to overcome, not the least of which was a theological and a cultural obstacle that says, we're just accustomed to worshiping in Jerusalem. Our whole lives, we've been told that we need to come to Jerusalem to worship. And now we're in Jerusalem. Why wouldn't we just stay here? But then, it just so happened, now all the kids, anybody on our VBS program knows that when anybody says it just so happened, so what happens? The hand of God a meter goes off. So if you're a VBS alum, you know what that means. If you're not, then that's your fault. Um, you should have been there. It was great. Because God is behind this. It just so happened that the widows had a problem in Jerusalem, the Christian widows. There were two different kinds, you remember. Kinds, that's not right. But two different uh, groups. Uh, there were the Grecian women, uh, that is, they were Jewish, but it came from a Greek culture. So the temple was not their big deal necessarily. They had been worshipping in synagogues all their life. And then there were the Hebraic widows for whom Jerusalem and all of that was a big deal to them. That was their culture. And while they all might have agreed on Judaism, if you will, they didn't all agree on, on the worship. 
and their culture was different. And then they became Christians. And so it seemed that there was a problem in distributing food one to the other, so the Grecian women uh, began to complain. So the apostles, through the, through the believers there in Jerusalem, called seven men who were Greeks primarily to minister there. And you remember what happened. Stephen, one of them, talked a lot. And in talking a lot, he talked a lot about Jesus, and he talked about the fact that Jesus had fulfilled uh, all the temple requirements, that Jesus was the high priest, that Jesus was the sacrifice. There was no need, in a sense, to worship in that temple anymore. And that, no doubt, caused a huge problem. And it caused a huge problem with this Pharisee named Saul, who was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and a Pharisee of the Pharisees meaning he sided with the Hebraic side of Judaism. And so the temple to him was everything. And so he brought a case against Stephen, and Stephen was eventually killed. And once that happened, Saul went on a rampage. Saul was a ravaging bull. There's no good way, I think, for us to think about this other than maybe thinking about the Nazi Gestapo or the SS or something like that. He was a crazed man. The Greek... Is, is a Greek word that would be used really for an, a wild animal, someone completely untamed. You can only imagine someone going from house to house, dragging not only the men, but the women into the streets and into prison, and we know from Paul's own testimony, killing some. Oh, I can't even imagine. So you can imagine the chaos that's going through Jerusalem, most especially this Hellenistic culture, this group of Jewish people who had become Christians, who had a Greek culture, but were in Jerusalem. And the scripture says, then they all scattered, and you get this sense of panic, I mean, real panic, scattered like a, a farmer would just throw seed. And so they scattered into, into other places, all but the apostles, uh, and, no, and no doubt the other Hebraic-leaning, Hebraic-cultured Christians. This was a Hellenistic thing, if that makes sense to you. The Greek-cultured Christians were scattered. This seems to be where Saul's uh, primary emphasis was. Uh, so the, the apostles stayed back, not because they would have been bad witnesses if they had gone, or gotten in the way if they had been gone, but, but they simply stayed there. there. There was no immediate threat, it looks like, on their lives. But these others all scattered. And in their scattering, this is the point. What well, Luke puts it to us like this by saying that they went out, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now that little expression, preaching the word, is a little bit mm, deceiving to us. Not that the Bible is being deceiving, but almost every version translates it like that. But almost every commentator that you read will say, that's really not a good translation. And the reason it isn't a good translation is because it's not the typical word for preaching that's used. In fact, the word that's used is a word that's very closely aligned with the word gospel itself. It would be, very, uh, it would be better, really, if they, we, we simply used the word evangelize or share the message of the gospel. What I use in my own translation when I'm reading it myself is simply this. They went around gospeling. Okay? That would really be, a, I think, nobody's bought into my translation yet over the years, but when the... the uh, BSV comes out, Bill's standard version. When that one comes out, it will be translated gospeling. 
Because that's in a sense what they were doing. This isn't like formal preaching. This isn't like everybody went out and found themselves in a little pulpit somewhere in some synagogue or, or whatever and began you know, preaching sermons. This was a group of people that in their scattering went about telling people why they were being scattered. That's what they did. It was on their lips. Now, they had a certain advantage, if you can call a persecuted group of people having an advantage. They had a certain advantage because they were new in the area. And, and, and we don't know how many of them there were, but there were a lot of Christians in Jerusalem. And so whatever all scattered means, you get the sense it means a lot of them. We don't know if they all went to the same places or how they went or any of that, but you get the sense that, that they would, people would know that they'd shown up in these, little, in these places. And in showing up, the question would be naturally asked, why are you here? Because they'd be having to find housing, they'd be having to find food, and so forth and so on. No doubt they left behind pretty much everything. It isn't like they called the local U-Haul and filled it up and drove it out. Uh, how would they travel? You could tell they were traveling. And, and the, the, the need to be interacting with the people in these new places. And so they had the advantage of, of having to answer the question, why are you here? And they simply didn't say, well, because we had to leave our other place. They said we had to leave our other place. We had to leave everything else behind. We may not be able to go back there ever again. And you'd think somebody would say, well, that's silly. And they said, no, it isn't silly because we've taken everything that we must have, everything that's dear to us, with us. And they'd say, well, what have you taken? And they'd say, we've taken Christ. He's our hope. Our stuff isn't our hope. Our home is our hope. Our relationships back there is not our hope. The temple is not our hope. But Christ is our hope. And so we have him. And so they began to gospel. They began to tell about Jesus. It was on their lips. Now what do we hear? What do we hear from God as we listen to this passage? What do we hear from God as we listen to Jesus, if you will, and see him work in the world? I think just a couple of things. This is all I want to to lay with us this morning. First this, that again, nothing, absolutely positively nothing, will stop this gospel. Not persecution. We mustn't ever fear that if, 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 if the battle rages so great, if the physical persecution comes against us so great that the gospel will die, it won't. Tertullian, third century church father, wrote a book called The Apology. And he was just laying out the truth of the gospel. In chapter 50, which is the last chapter, he titles it like this. The title is this. He says, the title is this, Our sufferings are our triumph. Our endurance, in your view, redounds to our discredit, the fortitude of others to their honor. Saying, you think that our suffering is a discredit to us. You think it honors our oppressors. Then he goes on. You may gain popularity by your injustice, but our sufferings and practical example continually attract new converts. Okay, that's just the title to his chapter. And here's one of the last paragraphs. It's a famous paragraph, famous statement. You'll recognize it, I think. He writes this. He says, But pursue your course, excellent governors, And you will be more popular with the multitude if you sacrifice the Christians to their wishes, that is, the wishes of the multitude. Crucify, torture, condemn, crush us. For the proof of our innocence is found in your injustice. 
It is on this account that God suffers us to suffer this. That is, it's so that his justice, his goodness can be seen. It is on this account that God suffers us to suffer this. Yet no cruelty of yours, though each were to exceed the last in its exquisite refinement, profits you in the least, but forms rather an attraction to our sect. We spring up in greater numbers as often as we are mown down by you. The blood of the Christians is the source of new life. And very literally we've heard this. The blood is the seed. That is, the blood of Christians is the seed of the church. So it makes it grow. And, and that's the amazing thing. The suffering church does prosper. There is no way to snuff us out. But as I read this, I, again, as I shared during our offering time, I have to think about uh, our own lives. Which is more dangerous, persecution or prosperity? Again, I can't go back into the lives of these people in Jerusalem. I don't know exactly what kept them from going out. Again, giving them all the benefit of the doubt, just the idea of that kind of travel would have been foreign to them and, and something needed to come to shake them up, no doubt. But we have to think in the context of our own lives. The danger of comfort, the danger of prosperity, the danger of living in our own temples, the, the danger of, of being in a place of familiarity. Uh, where does our mind go when it has free time? Do we think about the next thing we can do? Do we think about the next place we can go? Do we think about the next thing we can buy? Do we think about the next thing we can add on? Do we think of, what do we think about? Or do we think about gospeling? Do we think about how can I glorify God in the midst of my life? How can I take what's important to Jesus in getting us out there? Is that where we go? Now, please, I'm not here to put a big guilt trip on you or anything like that. I'm just here to be real. <laughs> Talk about my own life with you as well. To say, yeah, where does my mind go? Where does I, what do we think about? Now, I know we have to make a living, and I know that some are in business, and I know we're thinking about these kinds of things, and we have to take care of our families, and there's food to make, and there's houses to paint, and there's all those kinds of things to do. I understand that's life. But, but really think, and leave this for your own heart, which is more dangerous, persecution, prosperity. I read a book years ago called Ernie Pyle's War. Ernie Pyle was a World War II correspondent, um, not the most upstanding of all citizens, but he mentioned... At one point in the book, this, he said, life at the front is simple. He says, essentially, all you need is a helmet, a rifle, a dry place to sleep, and for him, a pack of cigarettes. And he says, you worry about nothing else at that point. He said, but life at home is very complicated. You get the sense that there are times when life becomes very simple. Painful, perhaps, Difficult, perhaps. But in the sense in which Ernie Pyle speaks of it, simple. You get a sense that for these gospelers who were scattered, there was some simplicity to life all of a sudden. All the old things weren't important. What was important is to find a place to sleep, find a place to deal with the day, 
and tell other people about Jesus. Because that's really what was compelling all of this. You get the great sense, you see, that God loves gospelers and you get the great sense that he uses our suffering to cause us to gospel, to cause us to speak of Christ. And that doesn't mean that the sufferings that come on us are necessarily punishment for sin or punishment for inertia or punishment for not doing this or not doing that and all that. The truth of the matter is, as believers in Christ, we have to realize that suffering happens and difficulties happen. And when difficulties happen, you see, those are times we may not have to get persecuted and scattered out of Jerusalem. But when difficulties come, where do we go? When difficulties come, of whom do we speak, you see? Very often, when life is comfortable, we give God some thank yous, and we're very grateful and all of that. But you know that even in the outside world, that's really not all that well heard. When life is going good for us, and, you know, this guy wins the World Series and thanks Jesus, and when, you know, you get a raise and a promotion, you thank God for that, and all those kinds of things. People hear that. We understand what that means in the body of Christ. But outside, it just sort of rolls off. But when we're suffering, when we're facing the very things that the world fears, death, sickness, unemployment, bad relationships, When we're facing the very things that the world fears and we face it in faith and we face it in confidence that God is at work and we speak of him then, not superstitiously, but when we speak of him then, then there's a listening. There's a... It's the way of the cross. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't so there would be no suffering in this life. It was so there would be no suffering in the life to come. But the suffering in this life is suffering that's granted so that we'll have opportunity to gospel. So that we'll have opportunity to experience the grace of God and speak of his wonders. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me and for us uh, that we would be witnesses of Christ. In every opportunity, in every situation, sometimes, God, you grant us wonderful, easy opportunities when life is good. And yet we know, Father, that none of us is immune to difficulties. And so we pray that in those moments, most especially, we would pay special attention to our lives and lips and that you would grant to us grace that we may be like those who went before us and that we might gospel. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The response to the benediction is this. I am a witness for Christ. Amen. Now when you say that, uh, you're saying that this is what human beings are to be. This is what Jesus 
has revealed to us who we're to be. This is what Jesus has called us to be. This is our identity. I'm a witness for Christ. And the word amen says, yes, so be it. That is who I'm to be. If this isn't true of you, don't say it. Just because everybody else is. Uh, No one will notice one way or the other. Say watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. Whatever. But if it's true for you, and it may be true at this moment, by faith, you're saying, okay, I get it. I'm a witness for Christ. Amen. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that, it's work, that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I'm a witness for Christ. Amen.